सहनावतु सहनावभुनक्तु सहावीर्यं करवाहवाहि तेजस्वीनावतीतमास्तु मावित्विशावाहि Welcome to the Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles, and tonight we're going to be talking about Vedic meditation and its mechanics and its implications. I'd like, before I start, to see if there are any comments or questions that you might have about your own practice that could guide a little bit what you want to hear about, because you're the practitioners of Vedic meditation. Is there anything that you'd like to specifically know about? Yes. The question was, what about upgrading your mantra? My preferred language for it is learning an advanced technique. And the reason is that though sometimes when you learn an advanced technique, it will involve having a more advanced level of the mantra you've been using. You know, we refer to these mantras as bija, B-I-J-A in Sanskrit. It means a seed, and a seed is something that can germinate. And so if something's germinating, then it's going through a, a natural change. What an advanced technique or an advanced version of your mantra would be, would be a, an experience of the mantra taking you in deeper and holding you in for longer. Think of it as a little bit like a free diver who in the beginning days of training for free diving can only free dive down into the depths for a certain minute or two or something like that, but with practice can stay down for longer. Our bodies literally, within the first year of meditation, wouldn't be able to manage the hypo, hypo means low, hypometabolic state of a very deep, longer meditation session. This is why in new meditators, we recommend 20 minutes twice each day because that's about how long the body will tolerate that restfulness for. The restfulness of our meditation technique is dramatic. And so after about 20 minutes in a new meditator, new meaning a year or less, the body will spontaneously begin surfacing, coming up into the regular normal metabolic rates of the waking state. And if the mind keeps trying to go inward, the mind and the body are doing two separate things. So this is why we have 20 minutes twice a day. But when you've been meditating regularly for about a year, then your body will have adapted to that very low metabolic rate that's consistent with deep meditation. And it's possible then to learn an advancement of your technique, which in the first few of these advanced techniques will involve a change in the mantra. The mantra is a seed, so that bass sound is still there, but it expands, it germinates, it gets a little longer. And this is designed to keep the mind right on the cusp of transcendence, rather than taking us all the way into the thought-free state, because in the thought-free state, there's no sensory perception. So the process through which we're going when we're meditating 
is one of learning how to let the mind hover in that least excited state, very close to the unbounded, thought-free field. When the mind learns how to hover at that level, you're able to actually experience the infant states of development of a thought. Infant states. So the very beginnings, let's call that psychogenesis to give it a very fancy name. The subtlest, quietest levels of thought are absolutely like nectar to the mind. And the senses get involved. Whereas in absolute transcendence, when we go beyond thought, we've transcended all sensory perception. In the very subtle state, in the super subtle state, close to transcendence, our senses are awake and experiencing those pulsations, which are just like nectar. And the senses will hone themselves and sharpen themselves to be able to get at that nectar because the subtle sense of taste, touch, sight, smell, sound, all of those senses are engaged at that level. And so an advanced technique is designed to take us into that super subtle nectar. And when you learn an advanced technique, you're given the instruction that you have the prerogative to meditate for longer than 20 minutes, up to a maximum of 30, as judged by you per sitting. So you could meditate for 20 minutes, or you could meditate for 25, 21, 30. You can jump all around that between 20 and 30 minutes, depending on what suits you, what is comfortable for you, what is practical for you in any given sitting. But certainly a lot of advanced technique meditators take advantage of the full 30-minute experience. Now, why technique and not advanced mantra only? Because sometimes, depending on your need, you'll learn a different technique of using the mantra rather than learning an additional or extended mantra. And this will all depend on how your own personal experience is evolving. The teacher of the advanced techniques has the capacity either to teach you an extended version of the mantra you have or to teach you a different way of using the existing mantra. And so that's why I prefer advanced technique. Also, the terminology of mantra upgrade, it's kind of like, sounds to me like buying tires or something for your car. (laughs) Your mantra doesn't need an upgrade. The mantra you received when you were first initiated will work and take you all the way to the goal. But you'll speed that process up if you learn advanced techniques at regular intervals. And those intervals are about once a year if your practice is regular. If you have a regular twice a day practice, then after each year, you really could give yourself the advantage of shifting gears. It's a crude juxtaposition to call it shifting gears, but it's a little like that. You know, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, same engine, same basic, simple format of the effortless mental technique we practice, but geared differently, it makes the whole thing move faster. Yes. At first, I... I thought I misheard you to say error in which we're living, but era. And, uh, you know, it was uh, like a double entendre, isn't it? uh... (laughs) Now, I'm so curious if you're coming on the retreat, because that is the whole subject of my retreat this weekend, is how to maintain your wits when you're a meditator living in a non-meditating world. (laughs) Uh, When you have this experience that other people aren't having, 
how do you, as your consciousness is growing and growing and growing, deal with all of this? How to interact relevantly in a relevant way with the world around us. First of all, we have to just look at what is it that is different between practitioners of Vedic meditation and people who are yet to learn that. Not that much, actually, except that you begin to add to your own experience. You begin to add something inside that asserts itself a little bit more every day, your true inner identity. Your true inner identity is that absolute place that never changes. It's not based on how many Instagram likes you got or how people talk about you or your own made-up concept of what you are. These things all go through change all of the time. And when, when one's own inner sense of self is regulated by phenomena in the outside world and including body, which is changing every day, if our idea of what we are is based on these ever-changing things, then it's natural that we're going to feel a bit cuckoo. <laughs> because you might think to yourself, I was kind of like heading in the direction of being a hipster, but then I changed. I didn't want to be that because everyone was doing that thing. Or maybe, you know, you thought of yourself as an artist, but then you started thinking scientifically. Or maybe you were scientific and you started thinking religiously. Or maybe you were religious and you started thinking only scientifically. And so on and so forth. And so these ideas about who I am, and if that's changing all the time, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to have one identity after another constantly offering itself to you. Now, as against that, there's this other thing. When you close your eyes and you do the mantra effortlessly, and then it fades and fades, and then the mind settles down into that least excited state, there in that least excited state is pure consciousness, pure being. And it doesn't change because it's not a thought. It's not a sensory perception. It's not a thought. It's not a thing. It is no thingness. It is the no thing place. And it's the place of your innermost absolute identity. And we'll call that capital S self. And as capital S self, big self, starts to assert itself on the mind that I may have changed my mind about 20 different things this week, but that big S self stays the same all the time. And it keeps imprinting every morning, every evening. It imprints on our inner ego structure. Every time the mind settles down and has that least excited experience, there is a spontaneous, not intellectual, not thinking, a spontaneous reaffirmation of this is the real me. And as that grows and grows and grows and grows in life, then all of these relative features that have a short-term capacity to define you will not define you as much as that unchanging inner self. And that is an enormous advantage in life and gives you the capacity that you won't see a lot of around you. As you grow and grow in meditation, you stop seeing after a while how different it is to be a meditator because the contrast point is receding into your history. When you first learn to meditate, 
it can be relatively revolutionary. Like, wow, this is really something new, how I feel and all of that. But give yourself a few months and a year and two years of practice, and it doesn't feel that new anymore. It just feels like this is how I've always been, isn't it? Isn't this how I've always been, like this? You begin to forget what it was like to be a non-meditator. Then the only contrast point is how are others behaving around me who are in the same situation I'm in? So supposing I'm getting on an aircraft, but the plane is late and, you know, there's going to be delays because it's summertime or whatever. And then you see people around you beginning to go through all kinds of behaviors like it's the end of their life or something, or they want to bring someone else's life to an end. And yet you yourself might start to get curious about what is it I'm going to be experiencing now? I'm fascinated by what this so-called delay is going to be bringing into my life. You start to use your hyper-acute sensory perception and you start to realize that there's in fact no such thing as wasted time. Or you have other adaptive reactions, which is more interactive with that change of expectation. Any change of expectation comes, the average person goes a little bit bananas. And then you start noticing that you're not doing that and others are. So then how do we make ourselves the most relevant that we can be when we find as meditators that we are less stress reactive compared with other people who are around us who, as a general rule, it's not a complete rule, but as a general rule, may be more reactive, more stress reactive than we are. And I think our starting point has to be compassion. Compassion can only truly be achieved by successful empathy. Empathy means literally to experience from within the other. Because the truth is, as you will find, as you continue meditating, a new experience will begin dawning on you that there is no such thing as non-self. In the beginning days of meditation, the inner self is experienced as this very inner place. But then with years and years of practice, it will start to occur to you that everything in the universe comes out of that field of being, which you experience as your deep inner transcendent self. That means that everything, in fact, is an extension of that big self, which once upon a time was only you. But now you start to be able to experience extended self everywhere. That's unity consciousness. That's the ultimate place where meditation takes us. And as we're approaching that, then it'll make our job much easier if we begin allowing ourselves to ask the question without even having to use language, what's it like to be you? Rather than, wow, you know, I'm feeling all good and adaptive here, but somebody else is just freaking out over there. How irrelevant. Rather than taking a judgmental point of view that this is self and that's other, let's take the point of view that that's also self. It's extended self. What's it like to be inside that physiology? What's it like to be that person? And empathy, when successfully achieved, has a remarkable effect on people. You spontaneously feel compassion for them, not just an intellectual idea that you're making up in your mind, but you can kind of feel what it feels like to be them, but they can also sense it. They can sense that you are someone who is 
feeling literally something of what they're feeling. And consequently, when you have greater capacity to behave in an interactive way, this will inspire your creativity in coming up with what is in fact the best response right now in this moment. When we don't have empathy, sometimes what we practice is over-generosity. Over-generosity would mean that you think that if you just throw something in that person's direction like time or energy or some love or some money, that they're going to feel better. And it may be that, in fact, that's not what they need. They may just need somebody to actually experience what it feels like to be experiencing from their perspective. And that might inspire in you anything, even I'll include this just to, as a point to prove a point, it might even be discipline. Like they're hoping you're going to discipline them, like give them boundaries rather than just throw open the floodgates. People don't always just want stuff or your time or your attention or your energy. They might want you to say, look, this is how we're going to get maximum effect from each other. They might want some discipline. They might want some boundaries. And if you don't give them boundaries, they might continue to behave badly until you do. They're looking for somebody who might love them enough to provide them with some boundaries. And if all you do is just like go all unbounded on them with time and energy and stuff, then that might not actually be the best thing for the moment. So how do you know what is the ideal behavior? It can only come through successful interaction with their consciousness state. And to have that, you have to have your own least excited state. Your own least excited state will spontaneously be able to detect their consciousness state and what it is that's the best possible reaction from you or interaction from you will spontaneously occur to you. It won't be in the form of a plan. It'll be in the form of spontaneous right action. You'll find spontaneous right action. When I worked at San Quentin, that's a jail in San Francisco, the inmates there just call it Quentin. And my method of working, I had a program called Freedom Behind Bars, and I used to teach meditation in there and a few other places like it. But it was one of my favorite places because it has such a scary reputation. And I love scary places. And when I went to Quentin, I was brought in in the night. My methodology was always to have the governor of whatever the institution was agree to lock me in for a week or two weeks and give me a cell. So I've done my time, but I haven't done the crime. <laughs> so I've got credit. <laughs> and my whole idea was that, you know, all the other psychologists and consultants and everybody, they check in at a certain time in the morning and then they check out before dinner time and go home. And the inmates all know that. And so that degree of bonding and trust is going to be greater if even though they know and you know that you can leave and they can't, but at least they see you putting in the miles and you're staying there 24 hours a day for a couple of weeks. So I was brought in late in the night on my first visit there. It was a long, long time ago. And the warder took me to the high security wing of that prison and he said, this is where we keep, you know, some of our baddest bad guys. And we walked past a few cells and there was a man who had been convicted of multiple murders. 
and was a very large man and a head of a gang. He you know, had a shaved head, and on the crown of his head, he had tattooed, and this is back before tattoos were cool. He had tattooed a spider web on his head, you know, and he had tattooed teardrops coming down, and he looked the part, you know, looked like somebody you'd cast in a movie. Big and strong and everything, but he's lying on his cot. I came in in the middle of the night, and he was absolutely sound asleep. And what I saw lying there was a man who was missing one thing only, and that was a little teddy bear. <laughs> he looked like he looked like like Henry to me, just a large version of Henry. He looked like a big baby lying there on his cot, and he was kind of breathing, and he was all curled up on his side. And I just thought, you know, when there's a teachable moment, I'm going to let him know. And so I met him the next day in the library when I was giving my introductory talk about meditation opportunities inside the prison. And he began talking to me, you know, and asked a couple of questions. And I didn't want to say anything in front of the other inmates. But afterward, I asked him to come up and I said, I saw you last night and I patted him on the back and I told him exactly what my reaction was. And instead of being offended, this great big guy who'd killed 36, I think, people in his lifetime. He was serving 24 consecutive life sentences. When I told him what my reaction was, and I mentioned the teddy, he hugged me and began crying. (laughs) Now, this is a guy who three or four of the murders he had committed were in the jail. (laughs) And he told me that the reason he'd killed four people in the jail was because he had lent them a cigarette and they hadn't repaid the cigarette. So it was time to die. Because, you know, the message had to go out that, you know, if you do a deal with him, you better stick to the deal. And, you know, you put a cigarette out there and the cigarette doesn't come back, it's dying time. And, uh, you know, if you're in for all those life sentences anyway, what's it going to matter if you have, instead of, 20 life sentences, you have 24 consecutive life sentences. What does it matter? And, you know, California has the death penalty too, and and he ended up, his life ended that way several years after I taught him to meditate. What's it like to be in that body? If you don't ask yourself the question and all you do is say, oh, God, ooh, 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 yeah, let me get away from there. That's non-self, that's non-self, non-self. This is going to be a challenge to your higher consciousness state as you grow. Non-self is starting to look like a bit of a thin argument because the ultimate consciousness state will tell us one thing only. There is only self. There is only self. As you start to grow in your consciousness, you're going to discover that all sets of behaviors are subsets of the big self. They're subsets of the big self. Big self knows itself. As you gain your enlightenment with meditation, and it's inevitable that you will, then the next level is going to be that you'll start experiencing all forms as extensions of that inner big self that you are. We can hasten the process by using and encouraging in ourselves empathy. Anytime you start to feel like there's somebody who couldn't possibly be anything to do with you and all you want to do is reject, rejection is basically 
It's a doomed approach to things. It's doomed because you won't be able to keep rejecting as your consciousness grows with meditation. Rejection is not going to be what you'll be able to continue doing. And so you might as well begin now thinking, how do I allow extended self to be the reality? And the answer to that is through empathy. And this is the only thing that really ultimately is going to bring this world into harmony. The basic idea here is that if you could really perceive what another's perceiving, if you could really understand what they're experiencing and how they got there, if you could really appreciate what it was like to be them, then there'd be only one possible outcome of that perception and that understanding, and that would be love. That's all that you could ever do. And so when we fail to love, it's because we aren't ready yet to try out the empathy thing. We're not ready for that. And if we're not ready for it, then it's not going to be happening. Yes. I think the fact that meditation as a concept has become so wildly popular in the world. And one of the responses to this has come from ultimately the Buddhist community who have said, heck, this is an easy thing. We can teach absolutely anybody who comes. Let's start off with showing you what your relationship is with thoughts. And mindfulness meditation, in my opinion, is a very good technique for learning how to shepherd your thoughts, how to be a good shepherd. And I think it's a fabulous thing. All techniques of meditation work exactly for what it was they were designed to, to do. There's, a, there's a, a, a desired outcome, and the technique is shaped in order to achieve that outcome. My friends in mindfulness will be the first to tell you that the goal of that process is not to go to transcendence. It's to allow the mind to develop a relationship with the thinking process, thinking meaning thoughts, memories, desires, cognitions, sensations, all of that I call thinking. And to culture that relationship so that we don't make thoughts into our enemies. And I think the technique's wildly successful based on how many people in the world are currently taking it up. And New York is a very good example of this, but I was just in San Francisco, and of course it's very popular there. Now our technique supplements that. For those who are interested in learning how to develop an alliance with their own thinking processes and be a kind and good shepherd of the mind and its machinations, our technique actually, not in competition with it, but I would say is complementary to it, because within just a few minutes, you learn how to step beyond thinking altogether. So then let's look at the mind as being divided into three areas. The knower, the process of knowing, and then that which is the known. So the observer, the process of observing, and that which is observed. Knower, knowing, and known. And there are meditation techniques that deal with the known. They are contemplative techniques, contemplating the philosophical relationship between things. These are meditation techniques that deal with the known. 
There are meditation techniques that deal with the process of knowing. That is to say, the phenomenology of the mind. The processes that connect the known to the knower. That's the field of knowing. And I would put mindfulness in that group of techniques. And then there are techniques that deal directly with knower. That is, step beyond the known, step beyond the knowing, experience knower experiencing itself. When the knower experiences itself, that is to say, when pure consciousness, in that state of pure consciousness and transcendence, consciousness, by virtue of being conscious, is experiencing consciousness. The knower, the knowing, and the known have collapsed into one condition. There is pure transcendence there. And so our technique specializes in delivering that experience, knowledge of the knower. Knowledge of the knower is going to bring about more precise knowing and is going to bring about a greater understanding of the known, culminating ultimately in unity consciousness where knower, knowing, and known all unify. That's a consciousness state that can come from years of practice of this meditation. My experience has been that people who practice mindfulness readily take to this practice because their mind is now ready to step beyond thinking altogether and experience just absolute, pure consciousness. Now, as regards puja, puja is necessary in my tradition because puja, that little ceremony of gratitude that you witness when you first learn to meditate or when you learn an advanced technique, because you want to have a responsible teacher. And a responsible teacher is one who reminds herself or himself of where this came from. So acknowledgement that I'm not the innovator of any of this knowledge. I'm not the innovator. I learned this from my master, who learned it from her master or his master, going back in an unbroken tradition thousands of years. That reciting of all the names of the masters coming up to the present day and showing reverence for that. And then at the end of that process, the teacher is partly ready because the consciousness of the teacher has been reminded not only of the source of what I'm about to teach you, but I've also been reminded that I have a responsibility to you, and that is not to change it. You didn't come here to learn something that I made up while I was at Georgetown or something that I made up when I was studying my doctorate. You don't want to learn something that's, you know, 30 or 40 years old. You came to learn the thing which is time-tested that's thousands of years old. And so that ceremony reminds me each time I teach somebody that it's essential for me to give to my student that which they came for the knowledge which was the basis of enlightenment of Buddha. By the way, Buddha is an offshoot of our tradition of teachers going back thousands of years. The knowledge that motivated and gave cognition ability to the great Shankara, Shankara who was the greatest teacher in Vedic history, or Vyasa, who wrote three quarters of all the literature that came out of India was written by one person, Veda Vyasa. And so this is the main trunk of a tradition. And so you're not going to be getting from me 
something over here that I found in the yard, you're going to get something from the main trunk of this tree and this knowledge. So it's really for the teacher, but the first beneficiary of it is the consumer. The consumer is the beneficiary of that process of remembrance that the teacher goes through. Now imagine this. Doctors in modern times, believe it or not, are still required to learn and memorize the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocrates was the great doctor of ancient Greece who set the format of, first of all, between patient and doctor, no harm should be done, and so on and so forth. There's a whole pledge. Imagine how good modern medicine would be today if every time a general practitioner or family physician or surgeon was about to touch you, they had to stop. And instead of thinking about the insurance benefit of convincing you to do some procedure that's not in fact necessary for you, if instead of that they were required to remember and recite right in front of you the thing that was supposed to be what all doctors do, I think it would revolutionize medicine radically today. And I would be a great advocate of it. It would only take five minutes to recite the Hippocratic Oath prior to treating you. <laughs> now, in our meditation tradition, we do the equivalent of that. We recite the pledge to our teachers that we are going to teach in a way that is not self-motivated, not motivated to bring benefit to me, the individual teacher, or make me sound cool or make me sound grand, but that I am simply a link in a chain of teachers and that I'm presenting to you their experience, their collective experience of thousands of years of practice of meditation. And so let's do things the way that have been known to be successful. And let's not try to reinvent the wheel here because you're not here learning to meditate from me agreeing that we're going to experiment with stuff. <laughs> Let's experiment and see what works. This is a method that has a very well-known effect. Let's do the teaching the way that it's already been tried and proven instead of the experimental method. <laughs> yes, I think it has changed. In fact, the streamlining of it has been dramatic even in my lifetime. When I first learned Vedic meditation from my master, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, you were required to go to three hour and a half introductory talks before you were allowed to sign up. You had to listen to three one and a half hour introductory talks. Before him, you had to hike all the way up to Jyotirmath, which is an, was an eight day trek from the nearest town, which is, was Rishikesh. You would trek for eight days and nights on foot because there was no other way to go. These days there are roads up there, but in those days it was eight days prior to 70 years ago. And you had to bring your flowers and your fruits and your little white cloth with you and you would meet the king of the yogis if in fact he was there because there was no cell phones or way of verifying that he was there. You might have to hike up there for eight days to 12,000 foot elevation and wait around. And then you had eight days, you had eight days of trekking and you had eight days of the master examining you to see if you would be a worthwhile person to whom to teach this. <laughs> and they may well say, no, go away and come back next year. 
or come back in five years. And, you know, you could leave rather disappointed. Now, if the master agreed to teach you, there was still the ceremony of gratitude. There was still the giving of a mantra. There was still four days of 90 minutes each, like that, each day learning proper instruction and so on. Compared with that degree of examination of you as a potential student, today we are extraordinarily liberal. We accept anybody who satisfies a few easy criteria. First of all, some curiosity, that would be number one, and the willingness to follow a few simple instructions. If you're willing to do it the way that I teach you to do it, (laughs) we'll see if you get some benefits. You have to be at least willing to learn from me. And then to what extent can you make a contribution that will support me being a full-time teacher and creating a tradition of full-time teachers who will follow you up and make it possible for you to continue learning? That's your course fee. And then, you know, you have to show up for a few days. So it has over the last 40 years, I've been teaching for about 50 years. So in the last 40, it has really streamlined to its modern day. Now, as to whether it will go through further changes, it's actually not for me to say. There is somebody higher than me in the tradition whose name is Swami Kailashnam Brahmachari, who is currently the supreme authority of the Vedic worldview and represents our tradition. My master's master was a man named Swami Brahmananda Saraswati. And after he passed, the role of the supreme authority of the Vedic worldview went to one of his disciples and then to another of his disciples and then to a third of his disciples. And then once that generation all died out, it's now gone to this man who is 41 years of age, who I'd love to introduce you to. If you come to my retreat in India in January, I'll take you there and you can meet him. He's an absolute delight but he is currently the supreme authority of our tradition. And he's already had some impact. He recognizes me as perhaps the most active of the teachers of the body of knowledge that his tradition brought to the modern day. And he's already had some effect of, I wouldn't say changing the teaching as we teach it in the world, but certainly he likes now to meet all the people I train as teachers. He likes to give his personal little exam to them. He likes to personally give them the imprimatur of the tradition, the thousands of year old tradition. And any teachers whom I've trained who've not yet had that treat, he wants to meet them and treat them to that. And he wants to get to know all of those people. I feel very honored that we have that connection to that ancient aspect Certainly my methodology of teaching over the last 50 years has changed. You know, my first lecture on meditation went something like this. Um, hello, uh, you came to learn about meditation? Um, I, uh, you know, I think life is like an orange. And inside my mind I was thinking, why did I say that? Uh, Because, you see, an orange is bitter on the outside in the skin, but inside it's sweet. And so meditation is a thing that gets you there, and we use a mantra. 
Any questions? <laughs> there were 50 people in the room, and to my absolute astonishment, I was 18. To my absolute astonishment, half the people in the room signed up after that talk. And when they didn't ask questions, I was terrified. They didn't ask me any questions. And I said, well, would you like to know what happens next? Uh, what do you have to do? Everybody just stared at me. And I said, uh, in case you were wondering, there's a course. <laughs> My whole first introductory lecture was over with in about 12 minutes flat. They came in. I delayed as long as I could delay and then stood up in front of them and I was just terrified. So I've certainly changed. Now I eagerly address, even if I think there's a million people uh, listening on TV or something, it's just like me sitting and talking to one of you. I, I don't feel the slightest concern about it. And I take a lot of liberties in making my teaching more relevant to modern day concerns and so on than I ever did when I was much younger. So this is a natural evolution on its own. One or two more questions before we wind up, yes? I don't think I can summarize that question. Yes. <laughs> Ultimately, the answer is yes. But let's justify the yes. And let's take it out of metaphysics. Metaphysics is great, but it's especially great when metaphysics is supported by physics. The most successful theory of modern science is quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the most successful theory because it is dealing with that place where the unified field comes into its appearance as a particle. So the movement from pure potentiality through a wave function into something that we would call a particle, like a subnuclear particle. Quantum field theory and quantum mechanics together describe the universe in which we live as one indivisible whole, and get this, conscious field. It must be conscious according to quantum mechanics <coughs> because we can demonstrate in lab science that there's only one thing, the particles that we think make up everything, that make up the atoms, that make up the molecules, that make up the universe, these particles themselves on close examination are not in fact particulate. When we photograph them at high speed, which is a possible thing to do now with the linear accelerators where you can split subnuclear particles and split them off from each other, and pictures can be taken of them, they go like this. The particle's not there, and then it's there, and then it's not there, and it's there. And in between, it is a wave that's identifiable as a wave. Then it bunches itself up, curls back on itself, and becomes a particle. Then it goes back to the wave. Then it goes back to the non-particle state 10,000 billion times per second. Mm -hmm. 10,000 billion times a second. That's what... This is, that's what that is. Everything, our bodies, they are made up of waves moving into particulate form and going back into waves again, but doing it 
in a sparkling fashion so that the average look is that there's an independent thing over there called your body and there's space in between and there's me over here, my body, and there's the mic and the floor and things. If all of the waves were to go flat and then go into their wave function, then go particulate and then go flat again, if they did that in synchrony, it would be a very bizarre world. But because all of these individual statuses and structures are sparkling in and out through their subnuclear makeup, sparkling in and out of existence. So since there's only one indivisible whole thing, and because consciousness exists, consciousness must be one of the properties of the one indivisible whole thing. That was an idea that was come up by Niels Bohr, who was a contemporary of Einstein. And so to test that, all we have to do is to do tests of what is it that breaks the symmetry of the flat state and causes it to come into its particulate state. And the answer is consciousness expecting it to. When you go to measure for an electron in a known vacuum and you put an electron probe into the known vacuum where there is nothing, the vacuum will generate an electron in response to you having an electron probe. If you draw the electron probe out of the vacuum, there's no particle in there anymore. If you then put a neutron probe into the same vacuum, the vacuum will respond by producing a neutron. If you pull the neutron probe out, it goes back to a vacuum again. Each thing that you go to measure for, so long as it is at the quantum level, you can't measure for a Rolls-Royce and get that. But if you measure for a quantum, meaning the tiniest discrete particle there is, anything that you put into a vacuum, the vacuum will produce that thing. If you are looking for a photon, it'll produce a little ball of light. If you're looking for a proton, it'll produce that subnuclear particle and so on and so forth. This has been demonstrated exhaustively and it gives quantum mechanics a very unique standing in all of the sciences that it has a practical application in the production of lasers and so on, other things that quantum mechanics do. So the quantum mechanics can predict the appearance of a particle within a tolerance of nine decimal places in time, an accuracy of nine decimal places in time, or to an accuracy of eight decimal places in space as to where it's going to happen. And there's no other physics or other science that has anywhere approaching that level of accuracy. Accuracy gives us predictability. And so good science comes from you have a theory which when you apply it, it causes predictable change. But what does quantum mechanics essentially tell us? This world that you see is in fact a manifestation of your expectation. The world that you live in is nothing other than the unified field answering your measurement. That means that if there are enough people, a critical mass of people, say meditating in a room, and we all go to that less excited state, when we come out, our state of consciousness restructures the entire nuclear and atomic and molecular field of this room. And there are ways in which you could approach measuring that. But one of the ways that you can really measure this has been done. In social studies, 
I'm not talking about high school social studies. I'm talking about studies on social functions where in the 1970s and 80s, some unique experiments occurred where groups of practitioners of transcendental meditation, a trademarked brand of meditation that was taught by my master, Maharishi, practitioners were brought into war zones. And just a critical mass of practitioners, something like a tenth of 1% of the population of a place in Lebanon and Nicaragua and other places where hot wars were going on. These meditators were brought, they didn't proselytize. They didn't talk to anybody about meditation. Nobody even knew they were there. They landed and they went to hotels. They sat in the hotels and they had intensive meditation. And from the moment they arrived and started, ceasefires occurred in these war zones. This was all measured by Yale University's Institute of Conflict Resolution and was published in their own journal as an unbelievable outcome. As an experiment, when the meditators would be extracted from the war zone and sent off to disperse, the wars would crank up again instantly. I mean within minutes of them leaving. As part of the experiment, they'd be brought back again and put into the hotels and they'd start meditating again. And once again, truces would immediately, war violence would drop. And so when you have something like that, where deaths due to war are vacillating in perfect coherence and in a time series analysis, you can demonstrate that if you can predict a thing's going to happen and then when you apply your intervention, it does happen. Like you can say, okay, there's a hot war going on. There are X number of deaths per day in a war. We're going to plant a group of meditators in a hotel. It doesn't work on the level of, you know, people out there begging everyone to be peaceful or anything. They just land and start meditating. And something's happening inside the consciousness field that's cooling down the temperament and decreasing the tendency for people to consider others to be its. Because to kill somebody, that's got to be an it. It's not a human over there, it's an it. And then if I'm starting to experience the it as perhaps extended self, I'm tired of fighting now. And when that starts to happen, then the will to kill begins to cool down and cool down and cool down because there has to be quotes unquote other, something other than me and it if I'm going to kill. So we've seen this already, that the impact that meditation can have, even in a war zone. Now, New York's not quite a war zone. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you bring high consciousness into that place, wherever it may be, and the contrast between that place and another place is a contrast that needs to be looked at in terms of quantum mechanics. Now, Claudia asked the same question in a different way earlier during the break. Are there enough meditators in the world to create a tipping point? My answer is, you know, I grew up in the era in which the superpowers were threatening each other with mutual assured destruction daily. And the idea that somehow we just lucked out and nobody pressed any button 
to me, is a very implausible explanation of why the world continues to have civilizations that weren't wiped out in thermonuclear war. That's an implausible explanation that we just lucked out because there were absolute madmen at the helm. You know, the different people who were in the cascade. My own father, who was a general in the United States Air Force, was the deputy commander of United States Readiness Command. He was the man who the president would call if the United States was going to launch on the Soviet Union. And he told me that the United States came perilously close, mostly during the Cuban Missile Crisis, far closer than people realize, to there being thermonuclear holocaust, where every city on Earth would have been bombed out of existence simply because of its alliances either with the Soviet Union or with the United States. And, you know, if you don't think that that could have ever happened, it certainly could have, and it could today. Why is it that we're all still here, able to talk about this stuff historically, since 1945, when United States started killing people by nuclear weapon? Why is it we're all still here, where the worldwide club of countries that own nuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missiles is growing every week. If you ask me, it's because we have enough meditators. You know, if you have a giant tanker that's going through the ocean, it's got a rudder on it. And the rudder that is supposed to steer that massive ship through the water, it's a skyscraper really lying down in the water is what the, those tankers are. There are no hydraulics in the world that can actually turn that rudder and make the ship turn. But marine engineers came up with a very clever device. It's called a trim tab. It's a tiny little rudder, very thin, about yay wide, that sits on the trailing edge of the big rudder. And all you have to do is have hydraulics that can turn the trim tab. And the trim tab turns like that, and that turns the rudder, and then the rudder turns the ship. And so this huge ship that can't be turned by any means known one little tiny trailing thing can actually change its entire course. You are the trim tabs. You are. Your meditation morning and evening is changing the collective and the collective is changing enough to change the whole direction of social function. And it's no, um, it's no surprise to me that when we look back historically, that the capacity that we've had not just to survive the potential for nuclear holocaust, but to actually progress through, and we've got some stuff done since the 1950s, haven't we? I mean, things aren't perfect, but compared with the 1950s, a lot of change has happened. Not only has non-destruction happened, but quite a lot of progress has happened. We can see that a lot more needs to be done. The party's not over with yet. There's a lot more that could be done. But we're not surprised, those of us who know the history of it, that the exact timing of our master, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, arriving from India and teaching this all over the world corresponds historically with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the mutual nuclear threat of the Soviet and United States blocks. Meditation arrived on the scene just in time, <laughs> at exactly the right time. There is no logical reason why 
our world should have gone beyond about 1949, which was about the time the Soviet Union matched the United States in the thousands of uh, nuclear warheads and missiles to deliver them. Um, but here we are in 2018, and we look at all this and say, why hasn't happened yet? It's the trim tab that's doing it. That's my opinion. So you got to experience a localized version of that. It was, it was quantum mechanical. All right, we have five minutes. What's that? Yeah, I think, you know, silence is very often associated with bliss. And there is a relationship between the mind being silent and bliss. But we need to know that we cannot silence the mind and arrive at bliss. You can't. You say to the mind, okay, be quiet. Well, hang on, that was a thought. Don't think that thought. But don't think that one either. Don't think the thought about not thinking the thought. Don't think the thought about not thinking the thought that you're thinking right now. I mean, the whole thing just turns into a ridiculous paradox within seconds. So how do you silence the mind? There's only one way. You take the mind to the greater field of charm, subtle, subtler, 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 subtler. Closer you get to the field of being, being is ananda, supreme contentedness. It's non-ecstatic bliss. I say non-ecstatic because we don't want to think that it's blissful. It's not ecstasy. It is a supreme inner contentedness. When the mind touches that place, the experience is so satisfying, the mind cannot conceive of where a thought could take it that's better than this. And so the mind falls mute. And so the silence is the product of bliss. Silence cannot create bliss, but silence is a byproduct of bliss. When you go into bliss, you spontaneously go silent. Our mind thinks only to see if somehow it can get to someplace better than this. I'm experiencing this and I'm slightly unsatisfied, so let's see if anybody's texting me. Or let's see if I got any likes on my latest Instagram. Or let's see if there's any news that's going to intrigue me and make me more relevant at dinner time. Let's see if there's a pretty picture here. Or, you know, over there, over there, or there. Our mind thinks because it's not satisfied with the present moment. It's exhausted the charm of the present moment and it wants something more. If we take the mind to that place where there is nothing more satisfying because the level of contentedness of that state is so great, the mind will simply fall mute because thoughts no longer are relevant. Anything that you could experience would not be as good as this. And so bliss is the source of silence. Silence, on the other hand, is not the cause of bliss. Bliss causes silence to occur. And so knowing that there's a relationship between silence and bliss but getting the cart in front of the horse, people sometimes want to go off on a silent retreat. But is it genuinely silent? If, in fact, the whole time you're there, you're thinking about all the stuff that you don't really want to think about? And the more you prohibit thoughts, the more you are engaging in that which is prohibited. You know, if somebody says to you, don't think of an elephant, 
then you're going to have be very hard pressed over the next minute not to think of the thing that I just prohibited. You have to think about the elephant in order not to think about the elephant. The whole thing's a paradox. So getting quietening things down is a, is a good start in the right direction, but we need a little technique. If we're going to go away and get silent, that's great. Let's get to bliss. And then silence will actually occur. Otherwise, all we're doing is suspending speech. You know, I go away and I choose not to speak, but man, that's hard. And then I'm still writing notes to people like, you know, you shouldn't really be taking the sugar from the table. It should be there. And, you know, oh, by the way, you know, I'm in silence, so don't talk to me. And I mean, you know, the thing, the whole thing turns into a, a parody very quickly. <laughs> you know, it's like no speech is going on. But there's all kinds of communicating going on. And there's actually no silence in the mind because the mind is just dying to talk again. So to bring some meaningfulness to silence, we have to have bliss. If we don't have access to bliss, the idea of being silent is just a parody. It's like a very good subject for a Saturday Night Live episode. <laughs> in other words, it's funny. <laughs> if you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.